Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Roy Green Show Podcast. Today, you'll hear Maxime Bernier, the leader of the People's Party of Canada, and Elizabeth May, the leader of the Green Party. Our election, is it under cyber threats? Lawyer David Fraser on that. Professor Donald Savoie on democracy in Canada. Suzanne Lucas, real evil HR lady, is her Twitter handle on helicopter parents, their kids and the kids' bosses. And former Newfoundland Premier Brian Peckford on the election and on the Trudeau events of the past days. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Roy Green Show on this uh, Sunday, 22nd of September. And we're waiting for our first guest to call us. Yeah, I always prefer to be able to place the call from the studio. Never very comfortable with the idea of guests calling us. Because sometimes their schedules do not match ours. Our first guest is supposed to be the leader of the People's Party of Canada, Mr. Maxime Bernier, because he was, as you know, in headline news a couple of days ago, he's included in the leaders' debates going forward, and I wanted to talk to him about that and some of the other policies he's and his party are suggesting. And uh, there was interesting information about or Canadians' reaction to the People's Party. Um, they're not projected to win maybe more than one or two seats. But when I looked at the Ipsos polling that was done for Global News, the best party to handle immigration, 42% of Canadians said the Conservatives, Liberals were next at uh, 16%. And then the uh, People's Party of Canada was behind the Liberals only by five points at 11%. They were ahead of the NDP at 9%. And Elizabeth May will be joining us later on today. Um, so, yeah, so uh, 11% of Canadians, only 5% less than the Liberals, said the People's Party would be best to handle immigration. But... They're not likely to do much more than win one or two seats, and we're waiting for Mr. Bernier to call, and uh, he's done this to us once before, once before. Some of the other Ipsos numbers, and this is before the uh, blackface and brownface scandal involving our prime minister, 37% of Canadians said Trudeau would be best suited for the role of prime minister, and... uh, 30% 30% said Andrew Scheer, and then Elizabeth May at 14%, Jagmeet Singh at 10 and Bernier at 5%. So, Mr. Bernier, when you have an opportunity to talk to most of the country and you commit to it, you should really follow through. And I was in touch with the People's Party this morning and just said, I want to verify that you understand this is the time for the interview. Yeah, absolutely, you're on the schedule. So, there it is. Um, I'll tell you a couple of things that we're going. They're calling now, so we'll go ahead and put them on. Will, let's talk to Mr. Bernier. So as soon as you've got him, put him on hold, and I'll speak. To, I, I know who it is. Just put him on hold. It's okay, buddy. You don't need to write his name in the bo- in the box. I know who it is. Uh, we're joined by the leader of the People's Party of Canada, Mr. Bernier. How are you? Fine, thank you very much. Um, let's start, first of all, with uh, your response to what's been going on in the Prime Minister's life and the, 
last number of days. What, uh, how are you reacting, and do you intend to bring it up with Mr. Trudeau when you're in the debates? Well, you know, I want to discuss about the real issues for, for our country, and that would be the most important for me during the debates. But the most important also is we all know right now that Justin Trudeau he is the biggest hypocrite in our country. Uh, he's not a racist. I don't think that he's a racist. But, you know, uh, the last couple of weeks, uh, the liberals and him were saying that because we want to have a debate about uh, our immigration bubble, uh, that, uh, you know, we want to please uh, racist people in this country and uh, white supremacists. So it's it's so crazy. And now uh, we know that uh, what he did in the past, uh, so he won't have any credibility right now to attack us <laughs> and saying uh, crazy things like that. Okay, when it comes to your party and uh, the election, where's the focus going to be? Uh, are you really are you going to focus essentially on immigration because that's where you seem to be getting most of the resonance from across the country? The economy, uh, the economy and immigration. You know, we're the only party who will be ready to balance the budget in two years. That's important. And also, we want to be sure to uh, cut corporate welfare. We will save $5 billion over there. So that's important. And the immigration level, yes, we want to have a discussion about that. So I think that is important. And uh, we'll have a discussion about that. Uh, so we'll see, we'll see in a couple of uh, days. Uh, uh, but uh, I think that's the most important for Canadians right now. So you do have the opportunity to get into the debates. That was withheld for a period of time. Do you have a sense that this can make a difference uh, for your party? And realistically, what are your numbers suggesting as far as how many MPs you may be able to elect across the country? Uh, first, yes, that would make a huge difference, uh, our participation in the national debates. It is important because... Uh, 52% of Canadians uh, are saying that they're ready to vote for a new party at the political level. And we are the new party at the political level. But a lot of them don't know that we exist. And so, but it's, it's a little bit normal after uh, just 11 months. So our participation at the national debates would be very important, and that will help us to elect uh, more MPs. So answering the second part of your question, we don't do any survey or polling at the People's Party. Uh, and we don't have also any uh, experience from the past, uh, because, as you know, that will be our first general election. So it's pretty difficult to know which riding we will win. But I can tell you that uh, we had a very good score at the by-election last February with Laurelyn Thompson in the Burnaby South. And that was, uh, and that still is, NDP riding. So I think that we can win some NDP ridings or conservative riding. But what is the, the, the number? <laughs> Between one and 338, I really don't know. <laughs> okay, so what needs to be done? What's your message to Canadians? What needs to be done as far as, I'll come back to the issues where uh, you focused and uh, it appears that you have uh, some resonance in your, uh, and that's on the issue of immigration uh, and, uh, and refugees and our borders and multiculturalism. What do, you, what do you say has to be done as far as immigration is concerned to Canada? What I know you don't favor official multiculturalism, and what has to happen as far as refugee claimants to this country is concerned? But the most important, uh, we must to uh, fix our problem at, at the borders. As you know, in Quebec, 42,000 of the illegal migrants crossed uh, our border uh, the last two years. So we need to fix that, and we have a solution. We're going to put a fence over there, and our RCMP officers 
will be able to tell them, if you want to come to Canada, you will come. But, uh, you know, do like everybody, cross the border at the official port of entry. <laughs> that, that's the most important. So, and the cost for our society, as you know, it's about $350 million a year. So we need to fix that, and we will. But at the same time, doing that will be able to help the real refugees that are waiting in a camp somewhere in a country, in another country where their life's in danger. So I think Canadians are generous, and they want us to help the real refugees, and not these ones who are crossing the border in Quebec. And actually, uh, the Department of Immigration said that 40% of them will have to be deported in a couple of years because they're not real refugees. And it's too sad and too bad that uh, the main uh, established party uh, don't want to fix that. And artificial multiculturalism? Yeah, we know that this country is a diverse country, but we don't need a legislation to tell, tell us that. And that's why we don't need the government to uh, give money and finance uh, uh, the diversity of, our, of this country. We need the government to finance and to spend money to promote what unites us, to promote our culture, to promote our heritage, to promote our history. So that's why we will uh, repeal the Multiculturalism Act and, and spend money to, to, to promote our country, to promote our national identity, and that's very important. Okay, now uh, Ipsos, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the aspects of their poll uh, a week ago, immigrants take important social services away from real Canadians, 41% agreed, 34% disagreed, 22% are, are neutral, 2% don't know. Uh, those numbers, do they... They, I, I don't want to use the word excite you, but I mean in the political sense. There's, do those numbers suggest to you that you really have resonance uh, with Canadians across the country in what people are describing as identity politics? Well, first of all, we don't play identity politics, and we don't try to uh, be politically correct. Uh, but uh, that being said about the, the, the polling, the one that I like is uh, when Canadians are saying that 49%, 49% of Canadians said that they want fewer immigrants and only 6% want uh, more immigrants. So that's, that's uh, very important. So when uh, Andrew Scheer and Justin Trudeau uh, said that we are radical because we want fewer immigrants, I think they are radical uh, because they're in line only with 6% of our population. So that's important. Uh, and, and I think that's why, uh, speaking about immigration, uh, people are ready to, to hear that message. And, and they're ready to hear it because, like me and like uh, people in our party, we love this country. And we want this country to be like that in 25 years. I don't want uh, in Canada to have uh, some uh, no-go zone like they have in France where you cannot go because it's too dangerous. We don't want that. We, that's why we need to have a discussion right now. And that's what we were doing. Well, I thank you for coming on the program. Um, we've talked to you several times in the past, and uh, there's a month to go to the election. We'll look for you in the debates. And uh, thanks again for doing the show today. I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you very much. Thank you. Maxime Bernier, the leader of the People's Party of Canada. Some people will have heard what Mr. Bernier said and take real offense. Others will support him. I found very interesting what Mike College wrote, president of Ipsos Canada, in a Global News commentary. He wrote, we should welcome Bernier and his views on immigration to the debates, if for no other reason than he's putting the issue on the table. Now, the vast majority, or a significant majority of Canadians, over 60%, 
favor the immigration. Uh, I think the numbers are the way they are. Joining us on the program, uh, I had tried to put together a segment called Federal Opposition Party Leaders Not Named Cheer. We almost accomplished that. Uh, Mr. Singh will join us next weekend. Elizabeth May is with us, the leader of the Green Party of Canada, just announced that she would decriminalize now illegal drug possession, also announced Canada would use only domestic oil products. And uh, Elizabeth, it's been a long time since we've talked, and I'm glad it's no longer a a delicate issue about whether you're participating in leaders' debates. (laughs) Yes, Roy. That was what we used to talk about all the time. We did. And I always do want to claim you. You know that because of the last name thing. Yeah, I, I was the guy I who I was the only I was the only one nationally who was on your side for some time. I know. Well, and your coin too. But yes, thank you for that. And now there's no question about except for the TVA debate, which seems to have a be in a no rules zone, and all the other uh, leaders are. Well, actually, I don't think Max Bernie is invited to TVA, but the other leaders are all invited to TVA, and they're all happy to accept. And uh, that means that the prime minister will be in three debates, two in French one in English, and one excluding the Green Party. So there, it's almost over, but it, it, it continues occasionally to have its weirdness. Yeah, it is, it is kind of weird. Uh, well, the week that Mr. Trudeau's had, and the fact that he won't say if there are more blackface, brownface incidents than the three we know of, speak to that, please. Well, it's pretty clear that he's saying he thinks there are more, but he's not sure exactly how many. I mean, he... he, he it's certainly uh, troubling. It was um, when I first saw the photo. I was I was absolutely. I mean, I actually felt physically ill. It's not what I would have expected of him at all. Uh, but and there's been a clearly there's it has opened up a conversation that Canadians need to have about how much racism persists in our society. Uh, that we would in at any time, and a lot of this is in the past, but still. There's an awful lot that needs to be examined about how those photos made people of color feel, how we need to unpack all of that and actually eliminate racism in Canada. And I don't think it's about beating up on any one particular person until the cows come home. In an election campaign, we need to talk about issues and put forward what we think we can do for the country. And I hope we'll be able to return to that. All right. Uh, but we do have to hold people accountable for their actions. Absolutely. Now, you Absolutely. told you told Mercedes Stevenson of Global News that a Green Party candidate wore a blackface and brownface. Greg Malone, who's a comedian and satirist uh, running in Avalon, Newfoundland, he's still running for the party. Uh, speak to that. Yeah, Greg Malone, of course, and, and for those listeners who uh, who are <laughs> listeners under 40 may not remember CODCO because CODCO was the beginning of Newfoundland comedy troupe that got that got on national television with CBC. The skit involved was one that Greg didn't write. He was an actor in the skit. He actually didn't like the idea that he was going to wear blackface. Uh, he regrets that he did it, but it was uh, on CBC on CODCO a uh, couple decades ago, and I don't think uh, that for me. I mean, I'm Greg is a dear friend and a brilliant, brilliant actor. So you're comfortable with him representing the party at this point? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I'm honored that he does. To tell you the truth, yeah, All right. I'm honored. Let's get onto the issues uh, that are revolving around the actual campaign and looking forward in this country, looking ahead in this country. Uh, you have said that if you were to form government, you would decriminalize uh, now illegal drug possession. Yeah. What's that about? Well, let me make a very clear distinguishing line. We were the first party in Canada that called for legalizing cannabis, and that was because we couldn't find on the evidence of health 
a, a discernible difference in terms of the dangers of alcohol, cigarettes, and cannabis. Uh, none of them are safe. None of them should be encouraged, but prohibition wasn't working. This is a different conversation. This is about not legalizing but decriminalizing. We are currently experiencing a national health emergency. More than 10,000 Canadians have died in the last two years with, uh, as a result of the opioid crisis. Uh, we can't help people who are experiencing mental health and addiction problems, which is a health crisis, if we treat it as a criminal matter. So we want to decriminalize illicit drugs, not because we think they're safe or good, but because making them uh, a criminal offense is not the right approach. And uh, police chiefs across the country and, and others would really rather not see their frontline officers having to be essentially um, uh, filling the role of, of paramedics and nurses. I got you. Time, time, is, time is always the enemy oh, here. Sorry, I want to get some issues. Here's an email that I received from a parent. As a parent, I prayed, got this this morning, I prayed that my daughter would get, arrest, get arrested for possession, hoping it might have been her rock-bottom moment. She may have gotten help. Instead, she's dead. Mm. So that's... Something to keep in mind, and Elizabeth, there are also the and, chronic. And whoever sent that message, my uh, deepest sympathies. We are there's a group, Roy, that has influenced me a lot, and I just pass this on because it may be of use to the person who emailed that. There's a group called Moms Stop the Harm, founded by parents who have experienced the excruciating loss of a child because of mental health and addiction issues. And I just recommend that as an outreach network. All right. for, for but just keep support. that, also keep that in mind when you're talking about decriminalizing drugs. And let's also keep in mind the chronic pain patients in this country who are living in agony because their opioid medications that were prescribed and it was worked out between the doctor and the patient are now being forcibly tapered and in many cases just being refused their medication and they're going through hell and suicide is a factor for some of them. Now, the issue of, of, of energy in this country, and you have said that Canada should use only domestic oil products, uh, no exports. What about exporting our own oil products to the rest of the world that wants it or the countries that want it? And you know how fragile the system is because we had Saudi Arabian oil facilities attacked just a couple of days ago, and that's got the world saying, hey, we need oil. Well, energy self-reliance is always going to be a good idea for Canada, and we've allowed ourselves to be a country that is dependent on imports because we're so tied up in exporting oil products. Now, the big picture here is the climate crisis, and the scientific advice is that we must go, now when I say we, the entire global economy is uh, going to be going in the direction of ending our dependence on fossil fuels altogether. What do we do in so, the next four years? And literally, I'm sorry, we have one minute here. What do we do in the next four years? Are you, are you against, you're against pipelines, right? That we have to build, we have to focus on the survival of our kids and grandkids, and the decisions we make in the next four years will make the determining um, direction. Do we ensure that they have a livable world through their natural lifetime? Or do we abandon them because we can't figure things out? Okay, I so, think we're smart. I think we can figure so we're not, things out. So we, so we, I'm sorry to interrupt, but we, we don't export oil then? We, we use our domestic oil for our purposes, but we don't export? We have not said we don't export. What we've said is we need to go in the direction of 60% reductions of greenhouse gases by the year 2030, and we need to go to net zero by 2050. Now, within that, the first thing we do is we cut the importation of oil from other countries because we don't need it. We are we have a Hibernia platform. Now, obviously, we need to renegotiate commercial contracts. Yep. Our position has been misrepresented by some who say we're talking about nationalizing. 
We're talking about prioritizing Canadian fossil fuels for Canadian use while okay. we are rapidly ramping down to where we have more. Well, I have to access. I have to stop you there, but I hope you'll come back before the election campaign is over. Well, yes, and I hope people can get full answers by looking at our platform yeah. for full pharmacare, for child care. Okay and for making it fiscally responsible. Thank you for the time, Elizabeth. We'll ask you again before the 21st of October. We have to go. We'll come right back. David Fraser is one of Canada's leading internet technology and privacy lawyers. He's the author of the Canadian Privacy Law Blog and the Canadian Cloud Law Blog. He's a partner at McKinnis Cooper in Halifax, and he's been a guest on this program many times on the issue of internet safety and security. David, thank you very much for the time, and uh, are cyber attacks on the federal election a realistic expectation? Do you think they're taking place now? Well, certainly it, they're anticipated. And I think that the government, before the election was called and in the last year, kind of learning some lessons from international experiences, has put together uh, a significant number of resources and some nonpartisan actors within government in order to at least be a resource to supervise and, and put some framework in place to provide assistance. Now, certainly I, I expect that there's probably all sorts of mischief that's going on, some of which that, uh, probably the bulk of which you simply can't see or don't know. Um, and you can really, I think, categorize this in a number of different ways. You can think about cyber threats in a number of different ways. There's the email hacking that certainly was something that took place uh, in the U.S. in the last U.S. presidential election. And I would expect that the email systems of our current political parties are probably under active attack, just like actually most email systems are these days. Uh, and that's something they need to be guarded about. So very high level of information security and integrity is required within political parties these days. And then and you what, think about, I'm sorry. Uh, and, and then you think about other things related to fake news, related to deep fakes. We saw certainly the tone of the election changed dramatically in the last week because of the revelation. Can, of let, me, let me break that down a little bit as we go along, if you don't mind. I just have, some, I just have some individual questions for you here, uh, and it'll help me sort things out in my brain, and uh, then I can communicate the, a little better from my end. What's the objective that these, uh, these, these, these cyber intruders have? And does it depend on whether you have a foreign government or some other entity that's trying to influence the, the election? Ultimately, what's their objective? Well, I think the objective is to try to get dirt and try to get information that could be embarrassing to uh, candidates and to the parties. And I think there's likely an expectation that they can, if they're going to be able to find something that they can uh, that they can embarrass a party with, it's likely to be in their information systems. It's likely to be kind of ill-conceived emails that have gone back and forth. It would be very interesting to see what the discussion was around recent re revelations related to blackface and brownface. Um, I think that's probably objective number one when it comes to that sort of thing. There's also been some concern expressed among people who, who kind of think about these things that if one were able to go in and get a significant amount of emails from somebody's inbox, you could then pepper that with fake communications. And it would be very difficult, particularly in the, in the pace and the tempo associated with a political campaign, to pull out and, and disavow those things that are unfavorable or prove them to be untrue. And so it'd be very easy to take some relatively innocuous stuff that is absolutely genuine, throw in misleading stuff and uh, achieve your objective. So if, uh, if somebody's trying to um, uh, spread some fake news and false news about, let's say, a candidate, and, uh, and they, they find that material wherever they find it or they create it themselves, and then they, they send it out to uh, a whole series of, 
of people, maybe in media or other political parties, somebody who can take that information and if they don't vet it well enough, can run with it and start to create problems. That it? That's right. And, and, and we saw during the last U.S. presidential election, not only was WikiLeaks already infrastructure established to receive this sort of stuff and to publicize it with pretty astute political timing, uh, we also saw uh, Russian actors register websites and domains for, for the sole purpose of hosting leaked, uh, leaked materials that they were able to or that they were trying to get their hands on. And so one needs to be concerned about probably foreign actors the most simply because uh, if they're financed by a government, and I don't have to name what government, they're going to have significant resources at their disposal, way mm-hmm. more than, a, than your kind of entry-level hacker script kitty kind of stereotype kid sitting at a computer in a basement. Uh, so if you're a target of a state actor, uh, it's a matter of, of it's a whole completely a uh, whole different degree of threat, I would say. So that other state actor, let's say it was Russia, let's say it was China, just for argument's sake. Let's say it's the United States, because um, we have a lot of dealings with them. They may have facilities at their disposal that are far more sophisticated or significantly more sophisticated than the best we have at the upper levels of our uh, cyber defenses. They may. And, and one thing that, I, that I'm concerned about in terms of the, all the preparations that have, that have been done, the, the political parties get to choose their own information systems and get to choose their own information management systems. And, and although I believe uh, resources from government, from the Communication Security Establishment of Canada, have been offered, we don't know to what extent the political parties have taken them up on that offer in order to have kind of top-secret level uh, protections in place. You'll recall that uh, that it was a simple phishing email that compromised the Democratic National Committee emails in the in in the states, and those sorts of things can be prevented. Those sorts of things can be avoided, particularly with additional resources put into to safeguarding it. So we don't know, for example, to what extent the political parties in Canada have in fact upgraded their security and systems, um, and. Uh, I think that's a shortcoming. I think that that should have been subject to some supervision by Elections Canada. Mm-hmm. So for the average person, and I've had these thoughts as well, when, I, uh, when I'm getting ready to vote, I think, well, how can they influence me? I'm a close observer of things that are going on politically. I'm a close observer of what goes on in our country. I'm, I make up my own mind about uh, what's, what's happening and what's going on and what's happened. And I know that I'm going to base my vote on that. As I'm hearing you speak, David, I'm thinking these campaigns, these cyber campaigns, aren't necessarily coincidental with the length of our election campaign. They can go on for years as well. And and my position, my view, is it could be for millions of people, can be influenced over a period of time where we're thinking we're just doing our own objective research and our own object, objective following of what's going on while we're gently being massaged into a line of thinking. Certainly, that's, that's a significant concern, and, and the, I think that the threat has been existing for some time. So, so before safeguards were improved, uh, somebody might have gotten in, and somebody might, in fact, be sitting on a whole trove of emails that they're going to release at the, at the opportune moment. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, that seemed quite clear was the objective of interference in the U.S. presidential election, uh, particularly prior to uh, the point at which it appeared that Donald Trump was a credible candidate, was to simply undermine public confidence in the system. And so sowing fake news, whether it was for one side or another, and, and, and increasing the, uh, the hype level and increasing the emotionality among the issues was, was one of their objectives. And, and you could see how that 
I just have to log on to Twitter and I see a, a fair amount of, of that sort of stuff happening. The 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 hyper inflammatory language, the uh, even a higher level of, of ad hominem attacks than we've ever seen before. And some of them seem to be coordinated. And certainly, there I see people who are supporting the the, the right candidates in in Canada, the right wing candidates in Canada, who also, if you scroll down their Twitter feed, you're going to see that they've been uh, been supporting the, the same kind of political causes in the, in the United States. And so there's there's some crossover. But I think one of the things we also need to be concerned about is is simply the is the phenomenon of, of fake news. That in the social media age, news travels very quickly without a huge filter on it. Yeah. And you can imagine you have somebody who's relatively settled in their in their opinions, or maybe they're they're on the fence. Among the stories that came out in, in the US was the Pope endorsing Trump, which if you're you or I probably read that headline, scratched their heads and thought, that can't be true. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but there's probably a significant number of people who can be influenced by that sort of thing. Yeah. If that happens the day before the election, if that comes out the day before the election, and, and it starts to gain momentum, um, that could, in fact, Very interesting, tip, tip huh? the balance of power, particularly when you look at how close uh, so many of the, uh, yeah, yeah. the races are. Yeah. I see emails quite regularly. Um, from somebody asking me, well, what do you think of this news story? Don't you think you should follow this news story? And I look mm -hmm. at it and I think there's, there's no news story there. This yeah. is somebody, something somebody's made up. This looks like it's from Mad Magazine. And, right. uh, and and then I do a little bit of, you know, just cursory research. And, of course, there's nothing there. But the, the original source looked convincing to the person who first saw it. And maybe the message coincided with what the emotional uh, um, response of that uh, the person who received it would be you know I this is what I, I'm already leaning this way so this story whether I know it's true or not actually helps me make up my mind yeah that, that, that I'm heading in the right direction and I'm being guided unknowingly by by fake news if I'm expressing that correctly yeah absolutely and, and, and many of the sites that that uh, are the kind of root origins of a lot of these stories look like quite credible news sources yeah can you um, hold on they, a second Absolutely. Okay, we'll come back with David Fraser. I want to ask him about his thoughts on the uh, on the Justin Trudeau story from the last uh, few days. Now we know it's it's true. It's not fake news. It's true. Trudeau has admitted to having at least on three occasions uh, worn blackface or brownface, and uh, he will not tell us if there are more. I mean, I I just I don't know how he's getting away with that. Um, and really, he has to tell us, and this is the question I raised yesterday, and I was screaming at the laptop on Thursday when he was being asked questions by media, ask him if 2001 was the last time. But we'll talk more with David Fraser about uh, the issue of um, cyber attacks on our federal election. We vote on the 21st of October. David is uh, one of Canada's leading Internet technology and privacy lawyers. He's the author of the Canadian Privacy Law Blog, and the Canadian Cloud Law Blog, and a partner in McKenna's Cooper in Halifax. We're back on The Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network with our guest, David Fraser, one of Canada's leading internet technology and privacy lawyers, and McKenna's Cooper in, in Halifax. David, the, uh, the, the Trudeau story, we know that, uh, that he, in fact, did on at least three occasions um, wear blackface and uh, brownface. And so this has been the focus of the news cycle in this country for the last number of days. It's also the focus of international news. Uh, what does that speak to to you? Does that, does that open the door for, for f 
for fake news or attacks on our on our election? We know it happened, but is that an opportunity for those who would attack our election? Well, something like that certainly could be, and, and that's one of the things that immediately flashed uh, through my mind. Uh, and then I, so on, on uh, I guess it was Wednesday, I got off a plane, turned on my phone, and Twitter was full of it. Uh, I had missed it at, at breaking, but an, an initial reaction was, is this true? Can this be true? Is this fake news? Uh, and then look into a little bit further, and yes, absolutely, it, it was true. But it's exactly the sort of thing that could have been faked. We're, we're now in this age of what they call deep fakes, where technology exists to not only just kind of Photoshop a picture, but effectively do the same thing with video and do the same thing with people's voices. And so one could manufacture outrageous um, video that looks like the real thing. And in fact, it, it, I, one might even see the uh, a, a faked video of one of at least one of the instances, I think it was where he was uh, singing Calypso music or something, uh, one could easily manufacture that and put that out into the, into the public discourse and, and present it as true, and it would be very difficult to disprove it. And that's going to be one of the issues that, that I think we're going to have uh, going forward is probably a much higher level of cynicism and a higher level of doubt, I would hope, with respect to things that we see, because we're used to believing our eyes and believing our ears, uh, particularly when we when we see something depicted firsthand rather than just described. And so something like this could have could have been could have been faked and could have had a similar reaction and could have had uh, could have uh, i guess moved the polls a little bit it's interesting that, that in fact it hasn't or it appears to have to have not but there could be other things that people are looking to produce that could do a similar thing so i'd caution kind of all the listeners the next time you see something like that um be pretty careful about what the source is kind of echoing back to the previous part of our, our conversation who is it who's saying it and for uh, and for what purpose yeah, and, and and go to your uh, go to you know go to uh, responsible news organizations like Global News to find out uh, whether they're carrying it or whether it's a story that that they're uh, they're covering. Don't we have countermeasures though for this kind of thing? Do we have? Uh, is it a case of we don't have the proper or the 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 most necessary countermeasures, or we're not using them, or we're not spending? I mean, when I say we, I mean the larger collective. We we're not spending the money on the things that we should be spending it on. Well, I think that the number one countermeasure is, is exactly as you indicated, which is a, a uh, our media uh, journalists who dig into these things on our behalf and get to the facts, get to the information. And so that's who we have to rely on. on. On one hand, you don't want to rely on whether or not the government, capital T, capital G, tells you this is true. It's not up to governments to, to inform our, our kind of political consciousness or, or to kind of let us know about current events. It's, it's independent journalists who, who do that. One thing that, that we've seen in connection with election interference, we talked earlier before the break about uh, efforts just to lower confidence in the political process. Hand in hand with that has been a significant effort to lower confidence in the mainstream media. Uh, you have kind of fake news and, and all, the, all the rhetoric that's in uh, President Trump's Twitter feed about the Washington Post and the New York Times and the other kind of leading journalistic organizations, I, I don't think that's an accident. I think that's intended to um, take attention away and take credibility away from those organizations that we depend upon the most within our, our democratic system. Okay, so when we get to the 21st of October, there's no doubt that there will have been attacks on our election. Uh, and uh, so really we have to be, we only have a few seconds here, at least in part, we have to be uh, police our, our own information and vet whatever winds up in front of us. 
Absolutely. We need to be critical readers and listeners of, of everything we encounter in connection with this with this election. Always good talking to you, David. Thank you so much for the time. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. David Fraser, author of the Canadian Privacy Law Blog and the Canadian Cloud Law Blog. We're back after this. Uh, there is a, a book that's going to be available to you tomorrow right across Canada. And given the conversations we have on this program on a regular basis, and that is the well-being of this country, uh, how it's governed our politicians, the political parties, the decisions that are made, it's a book that I think everyone, everyone should read. It's called Democracy. It's titled, it's not called, it's titled Democracy in Canada, The Disintegration of Our Institutions. Um, it makes the case that Canada's governance is increasingly centralized inside the PMO, that policymakers, not MPs and or senators, make decisions of real relevance to Canadians, and that regional influence continues to be significantly reduced. That sound familiar to you in Western Canada? The author is Professor Donald Savoie. He's Canada's research chair in public administration at the Université de Moncton, it's considered by many to be the foremost expert on government in Canada and author of numerous books, including What is Government Good At? So the new book is Democracy in Canada, The Disintegration of Our Institutions. And Professor Savoie joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Professor Savoie, thank you very much for all your contributions to this country and to Canadians. And congratulations on your Order of Canada as well as the many other national and international honors you've received, and they're well-earned. Thanks for joining us today. I'm, I'm glad to be talking to you. Hey, Roy Green, thank you very much for those kind words, and thank you very much for having me. So let's begin, uh, I suppose, at the beginning, and, and speak to us about this. Canada was structured, as I read in the book, after British historical experience without much consideration for the realities of this country. Was it a recipe for failure from the beginning, or have things just been allowed to slide? Well, our Constitution clearly says uh, at the very upset that we are, at the very, uh, at the very start, that we are going to have a Constitution uh, that looks a great deal like the one in Great Britain, and Sir Johnny MacDonald deliberately did that. In fact, Sir Johnny MacDonald wanted a, a unitary state. He didn't believe uh, in a federal system. And in fairness to him, in 1865, when we were debating the pros and cons of, uh, of confederation, Canadians looked south of the border and they saw a civil war raging. And that civil war was caused by regionalism. And so Sir Johnny said, we're not going to have any of that. Let's have a unitary state. Uh, he couldn't have it because he couldn't sell it to the Maritimes or to Quebec. Um, and so he had this uh, federal system, which was in name only, uh, and and so it began, and we tr we've tried to make it work, and we've been somewhat successful, frankly, at it. Uh, but I think the problem has become much bigger, and much larger. It's not just regionalism now; it's the whole machinery of government that seems to be uh, uh, really under trials and tribulations. And so we've let go of cabinet government. We have uh, we really have a cabinet that's more of a focus group. We have a parliament that, don't take my word for it, MPs have written all kinds of reports and books saying this thing its not working anymore. We have a public service that's knocked off its moorings. 
we have a media that's a traditional media that's under confronting some pretty serious challenges. So if you combine all that, you 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 have to conclude that the institutions underpinning Kenyan democracy are having a very difficult time. Uh, can we take these uh, these issues uh, one at a time and, and, and begin with the fact, and this is not going to surprise people, but you make the case extremely strongly uh, that power in the Canadian and the federal government in, in now in 2019, and here we, here we are in the middle of an election campaign with party leaders running around the country making all sorts of promises that cost billions of dollars. We all know they're not going to happen, or if they do, they're going to be significantly smaller, maybe smaller and more expensive. So, But, but power is in the PMO, in the prime minister's office, and with the policymakers, not the House of Commons, not the Senate, not the Cabinet, the country's being run by policy makers and by the prime minister. Absolutely. Um, it's by the prime minister and a handful of senior advisors. Ministers don't have the, the clout or the personality that they once had. Think back to the auto lang of this world, even Don Mazinkowski, Alan J. McKechn, John Crosby, Don Jameson. We had some pretty powerful voices. Uh, we don't have them anymore. I challenge, you know, your listeners to come up with a few names of powerful, uh, powerful ministers. They don't exist. Uh, they, they're taking a back seat to the prime minister and his, and his immediate advisors. Look, I, some, two or three weeks ago, or you know, uh, about a month ago, somebody in Cape Breton called me and said, we're, we're pushing hard to have an airstrip built, $10 million in Cape Breton. Can you help? And I said, well, where's the file? And he said, the file is not with the minister. It's in the prime minister's office. So think of this. We have a prime minister and advisors dealing with a $10 million file, a $300 billion budget on an airstrip in a remote community uh, in Cape Breton. If they can manage those files, they can run those files, they can run anything, and they do. Well, I can make an even, I can probably provide you with an even smaller, uh, less expensive example. Well, maybe not, but it's in that range. And that was the supply ship for the Canadian Navy, and, and it ended up with a, with a vice admiral and a vice as a second in command of the Canadian military, facing criminal a criminal charge, um, and it all had to do with the conversion of a ship uh, to a supply ship which the Navy needed, and it was at the cabinet level. I thought, what are these people doing? Well, yes, well, there you go. I mean, um, it wouldn't happen uh, in any other sector. I mean, the, the administrative type decisions are usually taken taken by managers, and that's where it belongs. Yeah. But the public service is not allowed to uh, let the manager manage anymore. Not sure that it was ever the case. But certainly now, um, everything is run through the prime minister's office and his immediate advisors. Uh, look at this campaign. You just mentioned it, Roy. Look at this campaign. We don't talk about the Liberal Party. We don't talk about the Conservative Party. We talk about Justin Trudeau yeah. and Sheer. We exactly. don't talk about the local MP, the local candidate. The whole election is going to run you know, on the personalities of, uh, of the party leaders. And, and I just want to go back to something that you said, that uh, ministers don't really have any power. So if we, look at, uh, if we look at the people, the ministers who were first come to mind historically, one of them would be the finance minister. That would be pretty straightforward. That the finance minister, probably number two, would be considered by many to be the number two minister. Not so long ago, Professor Savoie, as you write in the book, Mr. Trudeau uh, told reporters they should direct their questions to him, not to the finance minister, Bill Morneau. I mean, if that doesn't make people sit up and say who's in charge, uh, nothing will. Absolutely. 
And when the journalist persisted and the prime minister said, no, 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 you have the prime minister the prime minister in front of you. Ask me that question. Don't ask my minister of finance. Now, I take, you know, go back to the days of Walter Gordon or Mitchell Sharp. Uh, they wouldn't have accepted that. No, and, and there are very powerful cabinet secretaries in the United States who insist, even with Donald Trump, who uh, has a bit of a megalomaniacal streak about him, they still, cabinet secretaries, still insist on having some level, at least some level of control. In, in the Canadian cabinet, I, I honestly, I probably couldn't name, and I'm a political junkie, I probably couldn't name more than six of them. Well, that's the point. That's precisely the point, Roy. Uh, you're absolutely correct, and, and your listeners could not name five or six. Uh, the problem is that they don't exist anymore. They don't have these personalities. They don't have the powerful voices. We used to have regional ministers. Justin Trudeau abolished that. We used to have a regional minister responsible for Nova Scotia, for Manitoba. They don't exist anymore. That's the first time in Canadian history. The prime minister, flip of a hand, just got rid of them. I think it was a mistake. Professor Savoy, please hold on. We're going to come back and we'll talk about this issue of regional representation and regional power and regional influence in Canada. Because, I mean, I've been hearing it specifically on this program for several years now, really loudly for several years, from Western Canada. I'm also hearing it to a certain extent from Atlantic Canada, but particularly from Western Canada. We'll continue. Uh, Professor Savoy's book is Democracy in Canada, the Disintegration of Our Institutions. This country is being run from the Prime Minister's office. It's being run by the Prime Minister and his inner circle. And if it's not Justin Trudeau after the 21st of October, if it's Andrew Scheer, it'll be the same reality. Democracy in Canada. You can communicate with us on Twitter at The Roy Green Show or emails to Roy at RoyGreenshow.com. I'm speaking with uh, Professor Donald Savoir, Canada Research Chair in Public Administration and Governance at the University of Moncton. And uh, we're speaking with uh, Professor Savoir about his new book. It's on in bookstores and available online tomorrow, uh, Democracy in Canada, The Disintegration of Our Institutions. And uh, Professor Savoy talking to us about how this country is actually being governed by a prime minister and his or her inner circle, MPs, cabinet, um, public sector, not so important anymore. And um, Professor Savoy, let's talk about the regional realities. You wrote an open letter to the prime minister, I think about a year ago, and about Atlantic Canada. What are you going to do for Atlantic Canada? And I've been hearing primarily, because this is where we broadcast, uh, from Ontario through to British Columbia. I've been hearing from Western Canadians and a tremendous amount of frustration, particularly f coming from Saskatchewan and Alberta, some parts of British Columbia. And there, the issue of national unity has been raised, not only by our callers, but it's been raised by premiers. Six of them wrote a letter to the Prime Minister over Bill C-69 and C-48, uh, warning the Prime Minister that these particular pieces of legislation could impact negatively on national unity. So we have this reality then of the PMO, the Prime Minister and his or her inner circle running the country, regional realities being frustrated, people getting angry, uh, losing jobs, losing money, as happened in Alberta, and then premiers warning about national unity being at risk. Is all of this really in play? Or are we heading into, uh, into unknown territory? It is a playroid, sadly. I think the I think the mindset in Ottawa and it's been the mindset for the past 
uh, 60 years that national, when you talk of national unity, you're talking about Quebec. I think somebody's got to wake up. It's not just about Quebec anymore. In fact, in Western Canada, there's a deep sense of frustration. I hear it as well. You hear it, Roy. And uh, they better wake up uh, because a powerful politician could whip up a lot of feelings uh, in Western Canada and make the case that national unity is no longer exclusively about about how Quebec fits uh, into the federal system. Western Canada is deeply frustrated. It's kind of Canada. There's a sense of frustration here, you know, but the problem is that we don't have the political clout or the economic clout to make a, a solid case. Western Canada has, and I would urge Ottawa, I would urge every party leader to worry deeply about what's going on in Western Canada. Energy East Pipeline went down very badly in Atlantic Canada and uh, in Western Canada. We know that Quebec said no, and that's, and that's the reason why it died. All of that pipeline would have, going to be, would, would have been financed by the private sector. Ottawa didn't need to put one single taxpayer cent in it. They just bought a pipeline, uh, $4.7 billion. They didn't need to do that in, in, in the case of NDEs, but Quebec said no, so Ottawa said no. Yeah, and that is a problem. That is a really serious problem, and no amount of uh, reassurances from the prime minister or individual premiers is going to resolve that. I've had premiers on this program talk about uh, the country and uh, in terms that are concerning. The uh, Premier of New Brunswick saying we have to decide whether Canada is a nation or an ocean. The Premier of Saskatchewan saying on this program, do we have a country after a particularly contentious issue between British Columbia and the province of Alberta? Uh, we have about two and a half minutes, uh, Professor Savoie. There's also the uh, issue, and uh, please talk to us about this. We have a political system that is charged with debating and passing legislation, making law. So this process takes place. We go through the three readings, then we have the, the Senate involved and, and rubber stamping, the, usually, the, the legislation. And then the courts get involved. And now the courts have the, have the, have the power to overrule the, the, the parliament. It's probably always been that way, but it's used far more frequently than it was in previous generations. Is that a danger? It is a danger, and it's not. It hasn't always been the case. I mean, our, our system of parliament had parliament supreme. There's no question about that. When we bought it in 1867, in fact, our constitution gives uh, parliament the authority to disallow provincial laws. That's the extent to which we thought parliament was going to be supreme. It has changed. It changed dramatically in 1982 with the Charter of Rights. And at the moment, not only can the courts dictate policy, but we've now reached a point where it can dictate the pace of building, of implementing a policy, a program. That's pretty far. And so, you know, Parliament is no longer supreme. Uh, Parliament is essentially on the outside looking in now. How much trouble are we in? I worry deeply about my country. I have to tell you, uh, um, we have, you know, if we compare ourselves to Afghanistan or Iraq, fine. But if we compare ourselves to the ideal of what our institution our institution ought to be, we're not in good shape. And regardless who who wins on the 21st of October, nothing really changes, as far as the, the governance structure is concerned. No, no, because prime ministers we've had since uh, 1960s, every prime minister has come in and said, I want to change the system, I want to change parliament, I want to make it better, mm-hmm. I want to give MPs a proper role. 
once they sit in that prime minister's chair and they get comfortable and they look at the levers of power that's available to them, they say, why would we change things? Yeah. No, I think the only way it's going to change is to have the kind of political will, the, the kind of commitment that Pierre Trudeau had towards bringing the Constitution home. We need a prime minister that says we need to fix our institution. We're only going to get that if Canadians uh, insist on it. I remember interviewing Brian Mulroney in a one-on-one hour in a long interview, and I said to him that uh, it was very frustrating to people is that the member of parliament at the constituency level has no real power, but the power rests with the prime minister. This is Brian Mulroney, so we're talking early 90s. He looked at me and he said he was tired of the bitchers and complainers. So. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, I think even Brian Mulroney would recognize now. I think so. Yeah. That that we've gone too far. Even Brian Mulroney would say that the prime minister's office has too much power. Yeah. But he has, he has said as much recently. Okay, Professor Savoir, great talking to you. Thank you so much for the time. Thanks Thank for you. the book. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Uh, terrific book. Terrific book. A democracy in Canada. Now helicopter parents and how they interfere in the professional relationships between their adult children and the adult children's employers. I've been following this for a few years, and I saw um, a blog piece by um, Suzanne Lucas, who uh, tweets also at Evil HR Lady, at Evil HR Lady, and, and the story had to do, and I have to, had to follow up on this, with a millennial who spells hamster with a P. And what happened after that? Suzanne Lucas joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. That's a heck of a story. I love that story, it Suzanne. It is a heck of a story. Yeah. Just spell it out for us, uh, as it were. I mean, no pun intended. What happened? <laughs> well, so a, a woman named Carol Blymeyer reported this um, on Twitter. So this is not my personal story. But she was in an office in an open office sharing space and she overheard a conversation between a young woman in her 20s and this woman's boss and the boss was saying that she needed to correct the spelling on whatever she had written because hamster doesn't have a p in it and the young woman was arguing with her um saying but you don't know that i learned how to spell it with a p in it so that's how i spell it and no appeal to the dictionary would do any good. And this young woman finally went back to her desk and called her mom on speakerphone. So everybody got to hear the mom. And the mom said that she should report this, her boss to her boss's boss because she clearly wasn't uh, behaving properly, not allowing her little darling to spell things however she wanted to. So this little darling had grown up with the notion that she could spell anything the way she wanted to because that was inevitably and invariably going to be the correct way and, you know, no, no dictionary required. And then mom, mom backs her up. So how often does this happen? How, how significant is the uh, helicopter parent phenomenon? Well, it's significant enough that everybody talks about it and it's definitely had an impact. But I do want to be clear that most young adults, most Gen Z, will concede that the dictionary knows how to smell things better than we do. So while it's a huge problem, it's not usually to this extreme. Okay, and it's not just spelling, right? Where, where the parents no, no, get involved. Parents can get involved with everything. Um, 
parents want to call and set up uh, interviews for people. Some parents even accompany their children on interviews. Uh, parents have called to try to negotiate salaries. And we're not talking about, you know, your 16-year-old's first job at McDonald's. We're talking about kids who are graduates of college and who should be able to take care of themselves. And, you know, 30 years ago, these kids would have not only been college graduates, but probably would have been married at this point. So it's really this dialing back of adulthood and making these people still children when they're in their early 20s. You know, if I, and you just said this, but in my generation would have recoiled at the idea of mom calling our bosses on our behalf on anything. So what happened? Why is this going on now? Well, I think it's been this huge shift culturally, and certainly I'm not an expert on uh, sociology or whatever you would need to be an expert in this, but part of it I think comes from we have fewer children now, so mom just has more time. Um, When you have to only raise one or two, you have a lot more time than when you had six. And and being a helicopter parent, frankly, works all the way through college because teachers and the school administration don't want to make parents unhappy, and so they're more likely to just give in. And so then your child gets the special whatever, which then looks better on their college application, which gets them into a better school. So we've trained parents that this is the way to make your child succeed is for you to step in and handle everything. Yeah, you just have to remember when the child becomes an adult. Because at at some time, I'm sorry, but at some time, at some time in their lives, they will be responsible for making decisions for that parent. (laughs) Yes, that's probably true, and parents should realize that. But the problem with becoming an adult is you don't just wake up one morning and have all of the capabilities of an adult. These things are learned gradually. And you see governments pushing up the age limit for things. Like, I was babysitting for other people at 11. Um, And I think now my parents would probably be in huge trouble if they left an 11-year-old home by himself. Oh, absolutely. So, you know... you know, I don't want to date myself, but 35 years ago, um, I was I was watching the neighbor's kids yeah, yeah, at absolutely. that age. And now we say, you can't do that. That's dangerous. You can't walk to school by yourself. Uh, you can't be alone. And we take and coddle these children until suddenly we say, oh, you're an adult. But they don't know how to function. Is this uh, this whole this phenomenon of the helicopter parent? Is it impacting on uh, on on industry and success of businesses? Is it really is it an issue that has to be dealt with? Are employers frustrated about this going on? Employers are very frustrated about it. Um, HR managers talk about this all of the time, and some companies have even started including parents when they recruit at colleges and universities because they know that they're going to have to deal with the parents anyway. And what it really means is that instead of hiring a fully formed adult, 
you're essentially bringing on your teenager and you have to do that training not only of how to do the job but how to be an adult and companies don't like to do this some of them are doing it because it's the only way to get enough entry-level people into your company but if your child can do it on his own or her own that puts them at a great advantage over their peers Suzanne Spellhamster. <laughs> You're going to scare me. H-A-M-S-T-E-R. No P. Let me call my mom. <laughs> Your mom will agree with me. <laughs> Thank you. It's great talking to you again. We spoke with you about a similar issue a few years ago. You have a huge international following and richly earned at Real Evil HR Lady. And what's the blog? At EvilHRLady.org. All right. Good talking to you, Suzanne. Thank you for the time. Anytime. All right. Hamster with a P. Can you imagine? So you're the boss and you say to the employee, no, 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 no. It's not H-A-M-P-S-T. There's no P in hamster. Let me call my mom. Brian Peckford is the, as you know, the former premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, as a terrific blog, peckford42.blogspot.com, and uh, such a welcome contributor to this program, and Premier gives us so much of his time. Also gave a speech this week at Vancouver Island University, which I want to talk to you about, uh, Premier, in a, in a minute or two. But can I get you first to uh, share with us your thoughts on what's been going on in the past few days, particularly involving our Prime Minister? Oh boy, uh, I tell you right now, it's been uh, quite the week, uh, as I'm sure most Canadians who are following the election uh, would say, uh, I'm sure they would use those words, if, if not more extreme words, uh, and uh, just hearing uh, what you just said, that the Prime Minister said today about being forthright, when he can't say how many times he's done these uh, things of brown face or black face, of course, the great issue for me is not so much that he did it, but in his attempt to try to excuse it, and uh, of the hypocrisy of it all, here's a man who has uh, articulated a progressive uh, agenda, uh, support for minorities, the uh, more politically correct than any other leader in our country, uh, and then he, he, you know, he's a double standard fellow. Uh, more, perhaps more amazing than all that is the fact that the polls have hardly moved against him as a result of these actions. So one has to ask the question, then uh, the majority of Canadians, it seems, don't have as big a problem with this as you and I and uh, some others do. I, uh, I saw something earlier this morning, and I didn't really spend a lot of time on it, but I saw some... some uh, Numbers, I think it was Nanos, uh, and they show that uh, Trudeau is slipping, has slipped over the last seven days. Uh, yes, he, he has slipped a bit, but I mean the 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 amount that he has slipped is very, very. I think the the last average poll I saw was thirty four point six percent versus thirty three point seven. What is, what is this? What does this speak to? Does it speak to uh, Canadians saying uh, we we just don't trust any of you? 
I, I don't know what it is, but he, you know, the thing is, is that we do have an elected prime minister. Mm-hmm. He is the prime minister. Mr. Shear is the leader of the Conservative Party, and so on. The leaders are the, the other names are the leaders of their parties. But the here is a prime minister who's, you know, violated the law five times. Uh, you know, who's uh, broke his promise as it relates to election reform, as it relates to budget balancing, and on it goes. And now this latest one about his hypocrisy over minorities and brown face and black face and the like and it doesn't seem to matter significantly in how he is viewed by the majority of canadians i thought david aiken's question was so timely so necessary so on the mark on thursday when david said essentially there are other leaders if you consider there are other leaders in the liberal party of canada you're not indispensable have you considered stepping aside and, you know, as, as David was asking that question, it occurred to me that a number of years ago, and, and you knew uh, Justin Trudeau's father, worked with him, argued with him, fought with him. Um, at that time, there would have been no question about stepping aside. Exactly, exactly. And, and I'm glad there are still David Aikens around to ask these kinds of pointed questions. Yeah. Uh, because the more pointed the question is, the more ridiculous the answer becomes to those who are listening or watching it. And we need a lot more David Akins to more pointedly ask these questions rather than throw these softballs that have become the, the natural behavior of a lot of media. So, uh, you know, thankfully uh, there is, and I'm glad you played uh, the, the, the caption that you did of him actually asking the question and the prime minister actually not answering. There's another question that I, I was, and my listeners know this because I've been uh, repeating an ad nauseum for the last day and a half because I can't stop. Um, because on Thursday, when this Q&A was taking place between the media and Trudeau, and I, I, I want to know who was doing the clapping. <laughs> it was yes. just so orchestrated. Anyhow, uh, the question that I was screaming at the laptop was, ask him if 2001 was the last time. Yes. Was it the last time or have you done it since? Right. Nobody asked. No, nobody asked. And when earlier on he, he was talking about the issue, he, he sort of hedged on whether, in fact, there were more incidents or not. And as I think it was Elizabeth May pointed on your program, that's really not good enough. I mean, the, the point of it all being that, uh, uh, he, you know, he either remembers or he doesn't remember, and he should come clean with the, the people of Canada so that then you can have trust in what he says. And as you've indicated the, throughout this morning's program and in other programs, how can you have trust in what an, a leader says if he's always even hedging the, his bets about his own behavior uh, since he's been an adult? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's disturbing because as Professor Savoy just pointed out to us, the power in this country is concentrated in the prime minister's office. It's the prime minister and his or her inner circle. Yes, that's what and Mr. Savoy really uh, uh, clearly uh, helped us elucidate as well as complicate the issue and just show how more important this is today than it was even 10 or 15 years ago because the prime minister is now exercising more power today than he did 10 or 15 years ago. All the more reason for us to ensure that the prime minister and the, and the person who is the prime minister comes clean so that we can have some trust in the words that he utters. Premier, if you don't mind, I'd ask you to repeat something you told us last weekend because I've received many emails, many emails about this. 
And you pointed out that even when you were running uh, political campaigns uh, 20 years ago, that uh, the, the polling that was done by the political party, your party, other parties, were so precise that in one by-election in uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, your polling was within a couple of dozen votes of being bang on to what the actual result turned out to be. Could you just remind us, please, of, of, of what goes on during a campaign and how precisely these political parties can not only tailor their messages, but predict what's going to happen? I was uh, After that show last week and uh, two or three days thereafter, I was going to contact you uh, each day. Things came up and got in the way, and I, I didn't. I was going to contact you to ask you if you had any reaction to that segment that you and I did last week. And I, I take it from what you said now that you have. Oh, yes. And, and I'm glad about that because you're about the only one in Canada that I can, uh, in, in doing a survey and just watching all the media over the last while, has really zeroed in on this aspect of political campaigning in Canada. It has become unbelievably sophisticated. And what you just relayed is true. We did have a by-election in Newfoundland when I was leader, and we were able to zero down in this rural riding uh, into the various communities that were involved. It was a small rural riding in Newfoundland, and we kept and we had really good people doing uh, involved in our polling, uh, experts at it, and uh, we kept uh, doing these polls over the every second or third day, and we were able to zero down to a number of communities where the real uh, issues were going to be. We knew where we were in the other communities; these were close. So, and here's where, what the issues were. So we went door to door and targeted some uh, radio ads to those uh, about that, uh, that it was likely that we could come within 20 to 50 votes uh, and win by about 20 or 50 votes or lose by 20 or 50 votes. So we had to push these messages in, that partic- in those particular writings. Quite likely that's the result. And we got exactly that result. That's how, uh, that was back, you know, that's back in the middle 80s. And how, sophi- how much sof- more sophisticated are they now? Oh, I mean, like, ten times more sophisticated. And this comes to the point, this comes to the point that we made a few minutes ago. The reason why the Prime Minister is answering the way he is in response to the brown-faced, black-faced thing is because his polling tells him this is what you can say and this is how you can play this issue. And it looks like the polling, again, is very dead on, and the Prime Minister is following it to a T. And that's so disturbing. It must be so disturbing to Canadians to know how the, 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 the political parties can so manipulate uh, public opinion in this way to bring those messagings the way they are, which frustrates you and me. Yeah, and what really frustrates me is that he's not being forced to answer that question where there are more than three uh, no. That's really that's driving me around the proverbial bend. By the way, uh, your your interview with uh, with Elizabeth May is also uh, germane here because I, I tried to hear what she was saying um, in answer to your question related to the pipelines and so on. And if I heard her correctly, uh, she was saying uh, essentially that you don't need to put the pipelines to Eastern Canada; just renegotiate the contracts offshore and bring the oil from offshore then into Eastern Canada. In other words. Uh, don't let the country work and allow pipelines to go right across the country. She doesn't. She doesn't want foreign. She doesn't want foreign oil back, uh, coming into Canada. 
but but then it's got to be replaced in eastern Canada by something. Yeah, by our And it's not going to be replaced by pipelines. And you're and you're saying your policy will be to force uh, the companies to renegotiate offshore. That will close down the offshore. No company will work offshore Nova Scotia or Newfoundland if they're going to be dictated to as to where they're going to sell their product. Yeah. Um, wow. Before we take a break, Premier, uh, you knew Justin Trudeau's father. Very well. You sat with him personally. You argued with him, talked with him, and you actually spoke about the Constitution coming to this country at... at uh, Vancouver Island University earlier in the week. We'll ask you about that in a few minutes. But how do you think Pierre Trudeau would react to what's happened to his son this week or what his son brought upon himself? That's a really, really good question and it's very difficult for me to answer it. I suspect in trying to be fair uh, to Mr. Trudeau, given all of my uh, uh, arguments with him and disagreements with him over the Constitution, or over uh, offshore oil and gas, fishery, and so on. I still think my inclination is is that he would not like it. I don't think Pierre Elliott Trudeau would support what his son has done and how he has reacted to that behavior. So he might take him to the woodshed, as it were. Yes. I, even, like I say, and you're asking somebody who the natural answer would be by most Canadians who know me and know my interaction with the Prime Minister uh, then, Mr. Trudeau Sr., would say, oh, he'd go along with what his son did. I don't think so. I don't think so either. The, I, I just met him one time when I was a high school kid yeah. um, in a radio station. And he uh, he was so direct. Um, it was a different cat. Hold on, Premier. We'll come back uh, with Premier Brian Peckford, and we'll talk to him about his speech at uh, Vancouver Island University this past week. What a week it's been, huh? I received an email about half an hour ago challenging me on uh, going after Justin Trudeau too much. And so I replied... I suspect you are a liberal supporter. If it were Andrew Scheer, who uh, were on, I'm paraphrasing now, in the spotlight like this, what would you be saying? And the reply was, good point. So, <laughs> interesting email. Uh, the last two that I received today, let me just see where they've gone here. Uh, this is from Kathy. A real debate panel would include yourself, David Aiken, for starters. I can likely think of another half dozen, none of who are actually on the panel. Thank you, Kathy. And Premier Peckford uh, from Sean. Why is Mr. Peckford not the leader of one of our major parties? I guess the answer, he's not corrupt. So, you have a lot of fans, you know that. A lot of uh, people, a lot of people know, let me put it this way. A lot of people appreciate your honesty. One of the things that... Uh, as most proud, uh, I'm most proud of is, and I'm getting uh, goosebumps as I speak right now, is that when I campaigned, now and then I would have somebody come up to me almost on my back, tipping me on the shoulder and whispering in my ear, the only problem, uh, Brian, the only problem, Peckford, you got is you're too honest. 
Wow. And I used to really, I've never forgotten That's a compliment. That. That's such yeah. a huge compliment. And really uh, I, I, I so value that. And uh, when I gave the speech to Vancouver Island University yesterday, uh, this was one of the themes that came up by various people who spoke to me afterwards, as well as in the uh, dialogue of questions and answers to my speech, was that very thing. This is that what's lacking in our country is that uh, there are very few what you really basically honest people who will just really call a spade a spade and will call out policies which are, you know, uh, cloaked with, uh, with alleged uh, honesty, but which will uh, vary over time based upon... Right how people think not what the right answer is or what is really truthful. Premier, I delayed way too long. I'm sorry, but I want to know the, the essence of your speech to Vancouver Island University. We have about 90 seconds. Okay. The, the theme was simply that when the Constitution was patriated in 1981, there was a myth that grew up and took over that there were three attorneys general from Saskatchewan, the federal government, and Ontario that scribbled a little piece of pa- on a little piece of paper what became the patriation agreement. That is a myth. The patriation agreement originated with a written proposal from Newfoundland to the group of eight on the night of the 4th, presented to all of them on the morning of the 5th, then presented uh, to the full group of of, uh, first ministers later that day with the prime minister, and that became amended, the patriation agreement, to which the prime minister validated right after it was done, and to which other provinces have validated over time. Meanwhile, books have been written, articles have been written, saying it was... Uh, the, the, the sheet of paper by the three AGs when it was a written proposal by Newfoundland that got the ball rolling. Thank you very much for the time and thank you for the, all the time you give us. It's beckford42.wordpress.com. One final 10-second question. Are you expecting surprises on the night of the 21st of October or is it fairly predictable? Right now it's fairly predictable. Premier, great talking to you. Thank you. Have a great week. And you too. Prima Brian Peckford, Newfoundland and Labrador. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.